I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Jessamine Chan on her debut novel, The School for Good Mothers. Jessamine Chan's short stories have appeared in Tin House and Epoch. A former reviews editor at Publishers Weekly, she holds an MFA from Columbia University and a BA from Brown University. Her work has received support from the Elizabeth George Foundation, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Wurlitzer Foundation, Gentel, the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center, the Anderson Center, BCCA, and Ragdale. And today we're here to talk about Jessamine's debut novel, which is The School for Good Mothers. Jessamine, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe the novel. Well, The School for Good Mothers is about a Chinese-American single mom named Frida Liu who loses custody of her toddler daughter, Harriet, after having one very bad day. And in order to get Harriet back, she is sent to a newly created government-run reform school where mothers from all over the county whose transgressions range from benign to horrific are going to be re-educated for a year. And she has to pass a escalating series of tests in order to get her daughter back. So it's it's both a journey through her effort to get her daughter back and also her her effort to hold on to her integrity while being indoctrinated. As you might imagine, it is a, a rollicking, lighthearted good time. So tell us something more about who Frida is. Well, Frida is in a lot of ways the thorny, complicated Chinese-American heroine who I always wanted to see on the page. And one thing that has come up in talking to readers is that Frida is not instantly likable. She's not instantly sympathetic. And that was uh, intentional on my part. I wanted her to have the full range of messy life choices available to her. So one thing I will say is that I think Frida is a character driven by love. She's really vulnerable. She's yearning to belong. And in addition to being a mother, she's also a Chinese-American daughter. So there's an immigrant story woven into the book, too. And I think that's really fascinating that you say people might say that she's she's not immediately likable because, you know, I found her to be realistic, like a real person, like messy. Like you said, she has a life. She has a life outside of being a mother, which is something that we will definitely talk about later on. But to view her with eyes that are you know 
disapproving of her behavior is pretty much the theme of the book anyway. Right. I I think one thing that that I have I think I was I was mentioning to you that you're you're my last interview of the year and I'm I'm so excited to uh round out a, a very exciting 2022 by speaking with you. And one thing that has come up again and again is whether it was intentional on my part to have her do something truly bad and really risk reader sympathy and an ability to get into the story and connect with the the character. For me, I don't necessarily read for likability in characters, and I wanted I wanted Frida to feel very realistic. So thank you so much for saying that. So give us a, a bit of a description of what actually happens, what happens with Harriet. So I, I have to probably answer that in a very vague way um, without giving uh, too much of the plot away. But so at the beginning of the story, so this is not a spoiler because on the back cover and everything. So Frida leaves Harriet alone for a stretch of time, and the neighbors hear her crying and call the police. And as a result of that, uh, Frida loses custody of Harriet, and Harriet goes to live with her her father and his his new partner, who's this gorgeous, young, um, wellness-obsessed former dancer who's, as you might imagine, like Frida's worst nightmare. So then Frida has to meet with a social worker. She has to go to family court. And the deal to get Harriet back is is being sent to this newly created school. And she does you know, she does this thing, which is, you know, it's not great. It's not uh, the perfect thing to do. And she's clearly, you know, somebody who would not necessarily do that sort of thing, except out of, you know, an extreme situation. She's immediately regretful of it. But then subsequently, um, there's obviously there's an investigation before she ends up at the school. And everything she does from that day to, you know, her interactions with the various authorities along the way during the investigation whatever she does basically the way that she her behavior is interpreted by those in authority is you know it's something that you're um, you're looking at with a keen eye yes so i should mention that one of the inspirations for the the novel was just my own anxiety about motherhood and becoming a mother but the other inspiration came from a new yorker article by the journalist rachel aviv called where is your mother which appeared i think in late 2013 and that story is about a single mom who lost custody of her toddler son after leaving him home alone for a stretch. And then after that, they never got him back. So I think that story planted a, a kernel of rage in my mind. And one of the one of the sources of rage as I read that story was that it felt like no matter what that mother did to try to make the situation right, everything was was viewed through the lens of a bad mother who can never be redeemed because she'd done that she'd made the one mistake of leaving her son at home, which I think objectively is something you are not ever supposed to do. It felt like the bar for whether or not she could be good enough kept rising and that the challenges just became insurmountable and that no matter how hard she tried, it was never enough. So I wanted the world of the school to reflect those escalating, slightly arbitrary stakes. Tell us something about her ex-husband Gust, who behaves to her in the most unbelievably callous way at the beginning of the book, which is the reason why they're divorced, and yet is just, you know, he's handed custody of Harriet straight away and is presumed to be a, you know, a much better, a much better parent immediately. Well, thank you for asking about Gust because he's a he was a really fun character to write. And one thing that that I was an animating principle for Gust is how angry I've been throughout my life whenever I meet people who are 
outwardly do-gooders who are really care about injustice and like all they seem morally correct on the surface, but in their personal life, they're so terrible to the people closest to them. So I I wanted that to reflect in the way Gust and Susanna treat Frida, but to have them be not completely hateable because they're really good parents. They care about Harriet. They almost smother Frida with their their niceness and good intentions, even if a lot of insensitivity and even cruelty. And say something about Susanna as well, her Gus's new partner, because you mentioned that she is the sort of antithesis to Frida. And that's in, in lots of ways. You know, she her appearance is completely different on one level, but then also, you know, everything, her attitude to life, her attitude to parenting, to, to food and everything. She couldn't be more contrasted. Tell us something about this also, I think, monstrous creation. Well, Susanna was monstrous good fun as a creation, but um, I'm so glad you enjoy the character. I don't know if you've seen the new season of The White Lotus, but the the character, um, one of the characters on The White Lotus is kind of exactly in the vein of of how I imagine Susanna. And I will say when I started the book in 2014, Susanna felt like a much more out there character. But in the eight years that passed between the very start of the project and when it was published, I think a lot of Susanna's wellness ideas and holistic living and sort of like crunchy do-gooder way of parenting is now much more mainstream. So I didn't necessarily write her to try to represent like the the Gwyneth Paltrow goop way of living, but that way of living is now uh, much more commonplace than it used to be. So it ended up being in conversation with something that's much more part of the culture than it was when I started. Tell us something more about the school, the place, the regime there. What's what's the school like? So in another twist where you, you can't quite imagine um, what the world is going to be like when your book comes out, in the early part of imagining the school, I set it at a liberal arts college that had gone bankrupt. So I, I've actually uh, received a lot of questions about that, but it's it was something I made up a long, long time ago before the pandemic. I wish liberal arts colleges the very best, and I hope they survive all the challenges of the years ahead. But um, th- it was supposed to be uh, satirical in a way because it was imagining a, a society where liberal arts colleges are not as important. So so I imagined the, the moms um, in this sort of re-education camp, but in a place of beauty, um, a liberal arts college where they're on many, many acres of land. Um, it's also a college that could house many more mothers than the ones that are there in, in the very first year of the school. So it's supposed to have that ominous quality of a, the program that could really grow. Tell us something about the regime there. Um, I'm I'm trying to think of a way to to tell you without giving too much away. But I, I think on principle, the school has a, a lot of different lessons. So for example, the mothers have a unit on care and affection. They have a unit on food and medicine. They have a unit on how to protect your child. They have a unit on the moral universe. So some of some of the lessons are much more out there than others. But in, in figuring out what the lessons at this uh, slightly futuristic school would be, I was interested in taking a kernel of reality, something that would be just common sense that we could all agree on, such as pay close attention to your child, and then taking it in a much more extreme directions. So for example, all parents are supposed to pay attention to their children. But at the school, if you look away, you're punished, like if you look away at all. So I I wanted to take the feeling of being watched and use the surveillance in the school and the way the lessons 
are constructed to to take that feeling and make it literal. Because I, I think all parents, the minute you leave the house, you're being watched. So it's it's taking that and ratcheting it up so many degrees. And just tell us something about some of the other mothers that we find at the school. Sure. I think I wanted the demographics of the school to reflect the fact that in reality, in America, the majority of of mothers who are caught in the family court system and who are punished for a variety of transgressions, whether or not they be completely innocent to to something that would be the stuff that that happens that makes it onto the the front page of the paper. The mothers caught in the family court system are disproportionately brown and black women who are poor. So I wanted the the racial makeup of the school and the class makeup of the school to gesture toward that reality, even even though obviously this is a novel and not a sociological study. So so Frida is one of is is the only Asian mother at the school. Um, most of her uh, her comrades are brown and black women from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds and she has to she has to make bonds at the, she has to make connections at the school while being an outsider as a chinese american uh, from an upper middle class background um someone who's never run afoul of the law before and so the mothers are really struggling to survive, um, to form connections that will help them survive. Also, they're just struggling with the the constant grief of um, being separated from their children. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Your list is a little atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jessamine Chan, and we're talking about her debut novel, The School for Good Mothers. 
And Jessamine, you hinted at this a little in the first half, but tell us some more ways in which your own experience of becoming a mother influenced the book. Sure. I actually started the book several years before getting pregnant. So everyone's been quite surprised to hear that. But I I was in my mid-30s and thinking a lot about what path my life would take. And my my husband and I were were trying to feel ready to to have a child, even though at the time we were living in New York, we didn't have the money, our careers were not at the point we wanted them to be. But I think the the fact of the biological clock forced us to get realistic about it. So I already had motherhood on the brain. And so I was really constantly ruminating on that question and what kind of mother I'd be, um, whether or not I would be good enough. And I think my my anxiety about motherhood really fueled the creation of this book. And certainly not everyone deals with their maternal ambivalence or anxiety by beginning a dystopian novel, but that's where it went for me. Let's talk about some ideas around motherhood in the book as well, because we we've had for you know for decades now that sort of I guess second wave feminism idea that you know women can have it all, they can have a high flying career, but also be mothers. And um, this is something we have in the UK as well. Perhaps not as much. The other thing which you have in the U- in the US particularly seems to be coming more and more prevalent is this sort of like trad wife idea where the you know the the centrality of the idea of a woman as a mother seems to be you know very very important among a certain uh, cohort of US citizens and i wanted to talk about that that idea of somebody like frida obviously has multiple identities she's she is a mother but she's also somebody with a job she's a wife she's a lover she she has friends you know she she has multiple identities but According to the authorities in the book, the central identity should be a mother. You know, I'm talking to you from a a very different place politically than even eight months ago, because the traditional wife and the traditional mom certainly has been put on a pedestal much more in the last maybe 10 years than I I also grew up with that, um, the model of the woman who could have it all. I mean, my mom worked full time all my life, I think she had maybe a month off for maternity leave. And so I grew up with a career mom. And I grew up in the 80s and 90s with the the second wave feminist um, view of like the woman who could have it all. But it's it's really crazy how much the pendulum has swung back. And certainly in the US, the pendulum has swung back so much that now abortion is banned in half of America. And I'm going to have to explain to my daughter at some point that in half of the country, she wouldn't have the right to choose what happens to your own body. And so it's it's really terrifying in a way to be female in America right now and, and think about the way that women's rights have eroded. But I wanted I wanted the novel to really question where our culture is and question the idea that once you become a mother, no other part of your identity matters anymore, which is something that is espoused both in pop culture and the media, but also from other mothers. I mean, I got questions when I would meet other preschool moms like that were politically progressive, well-intentioned fellow mom would ask me, so so what did you do before becoming a mom? And I remember being so offended because I thought, like, I am a writer. I was a writer. That doesn't go away just because I'm a mom now. So I, I guess I was really surprised how much women reinforce that messaging with each other besides having it all fed to us from the patriarchy. One thing that seems really frustrating is that clearly there were massive issues with the idea that, you know, women could have it all anyway. You know, men don't help out enough. There's not enough support. There's not enough, 
you know, reasonably priced childcare, et cetera, et cetera. But we have to <laughs> we have to defend that position to the death now, of course, because the alternative has just become so crazy. Well, I think one thing that I've I've really thought about in the last couple of years, I think because of the pandemic um, and because um, my life got very busy this year with the launch of the book is is how hard it is in America in particular to manage a a two career household in terms of the cost of childcare, the basic logistics. I mean, my husband has always done way more than half childcare and school tuition is pretty much the same as a year of rent. And I remember, I remember completely horrifying everyone I, I spoke to um, in my recent trip to England when I explained how much we spend on healthcare and childcare. So I realized that um, things in the UK are not perfect either, but those are some, some fundamentals that, that your government provides that ours really doesn't. Can we just talk for a minute about writing a novel about this subject matter as a speculative fiction, which is what it is. The book is set in, you know, not way into the future, but certainly into a future where there are a number of, you know, as you said, exaggerated versions of things like surveillance culture that we that we already have. And there are, you know, there are things that happen in the book that we're not going to talk about, but there are definitely things that wouldn't, I don't think we'd be capable of having now, for instance. Sure. I was really inspired by novels like Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, because in that book, I really admired the fact that there was just one or two things that were different, but that the novel itself was pretty realistic, except for those one or two speculative elements. So I was interested in that type of, of world building. Like, of course, I any feminist dystopian novel is indebted to The Handman's Tale, which is the perfect novel in every way. But I was I didn't necessarily want to do that level of world building where you have to explain all the laws that have changed and imagine every single change in society that made the world of your novel possible. I wanted to kind of plunge readers into the world as it is now. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? I'm just going to read from the opening pages. We have your daughter. It's the first Tuesday in September, the afternoon of her one very bad day, and Frida is trying to stay on the road. On the voicemail, the officer tells her to come to the station immediately. She pauses the message, puts down her phone. It's 2.46 p.m. She meant to get home an hour and a half ago. She pulls onto the first side street off Grace Ferry and double parks. She calls back and begins apologizing, explaining that she lost track of time. Is she okay? The officer says the child is safe. Ma'am, we've been trying to reach you. Frida hangs up and calls Gust, has to leave a message. He needs to meet her at the station at 11th and Wharton. There's a problem. It's Harriet. Her voice catches. She repeats the officer's promise that their daughter is safe. As she begins driving again, she reminds herself to stay under the speed limit, to avoid running red lights, to breathe. All through Labor Day weekend, she felt frantic. Last Friday and Saturday, she had her usual insomnia, sleeping two hours each night. On Sunday... When Gus dropped off Harriet for Frida's three and a half days of custody, Harriet was in the throes of an ear infection. That night, Frida slept 90 minutes, last night an hour. Harriet's crying has been relentless, too big for her body, too loud for the walls of their tiny house to absorb. Frida did what she could. She sang lullabies, rubbed Harriet's chest, gave her extra milk. She laid on the floor next to Harriet's crib, held her impossibly perfect hand through the bars, kissed her knuckles, her fingernails feeling for the ones that needed to be trimmed, praying for Harriet's eyes to close. The afternoon sun is burning as Frida pulls up to the station, located two blocks from her house in an old Italian neighborhood in South Philly. 
She parks and rushes to the reception desk, asks if the receptionist has seen her daughter, a toddler, 18 months old, half Chinese, half white, big brown eyes, curly dark brown hair with bangs. You must be the mother, the receptionist says. The receptionist, an elderly white woman wearing a smear of pink lipstick, emerges from behind the desk. Her eyes flick over Frida from head to toe, pausing at Frida's feet, her worn-out Birkenstocks. The station seems to be mostly empty. The receptionist walks with halting steps, favoring her left leg. She leads Frida down the hall and deposits her in a windowless interrogation room where the walls are a cloying mint green. Frida sits. In crime movies she's seen, the lights are always flickering, but here the glare is steady. She has goosebumps, wishes for a jacket or scarf. Though she's often exhausted on the day she has Harriet, now there's a weight bearing down on her chest, an ache that is passed into her bones, numbing her. She rubs her arms, her attention fading in and out. She retrieves her phone from the bottom of her purse, cursing herself for not seeing the officer's messages immediately, for having silenced her phone this morning after getting fed up with endless robocalls, for having forgotten to turn the ringer back on. In the past 20 minutes, Gust has called six times and sent a stream of worried texts. Here, she writes finally, come soon. She should call back, but she's afraid. During her half of the week, Gus calls every night to find out if Harriet has new words or motor skills. She hates the disappointment in his voice when she fails to deliver. But Harriet is changing in other ways. A stronger grip, noticing a new detail in a book, holding Frida's gaze longer when they kiss goodnight. Resting her forearms on the metal table, Frida puts her head down and falls asleep for a split second. She looks up and spots a camera in the corner of the ceiling. Her mind returns to Harriet. She'll buy a carton of strawberry ice cream, Harriet's favorite. When they get home, she'll let Harriet play in the tub as long as she wants. She'll read Harriet extra books at bedtime. I am a bunny. Corduroy. The officers enter without knocking. Officer Brunner, the one who called, is a burly white man in his 20s with acne at the corners of his mouth. Officer Harris is a middle-aged black man with a perfectly groomed mustache and strong shoulders. She stands and she shakes hands with both of them. They ask to see her driver's license, confirm that she's Frida Liu. Where is my baby? Sit down, Officer Brunner says, glancing at Frida's chest. He flips his notebook to a blank page. Ma'am, what time did you leave the house? Maybe noon, 12.30. I went out for coffee, and then I went to my office. I shouldn't have, I know. It was so stupid. I was exhausted. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Can you please tell me where she is? Don't play dumb with us, Miss Leo, Officer Harris says. I'm not. I can explain. You left your baby at home, alone. Your neighbors heard her crying. Frida spreads her palms on the table, needing to touch something cold and solid. It was a mistake. So I've been talking to Jessamine Chan. We've been talking about her debut novel, The School for Good Mothers, which is out in the UK from Hutchinson Heinemann. Jessamine, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much and happy holidays to you and all of your listeners. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.